Welcome, everyone. This is Christy Balsells. Today is December 4th, 2015, and we're going to be talking today about diet, dysmotility, and tube feeding with our partner, ThriveRx, and the clinical specialist, Dr. Kristen Roberts from ThriveRx, who has spoken with us before and has a very informative presentation for us today. Kristen, before we get started, I just want to give you a brief introduction and briefly introduce the topic as well. So Kristen is an assistant professor of clinical medicine at the Ohio State Wexler Medical Center and a registered dietitian and has a tremendous background specifically in intestinal failure and home nutrition support. Part of why I was really excited about Kristen talking today is because of how consumer-oriented ThriveRx is, meaning having a direct relationship with the patients and really being interested not only in providing services for home nutrition support, but also in helping patients become better educated on that journey. And Kristen has a tremendous clinical background in working with working with patients with intestinal failure and with patients with mitochondrial disease who have dysmotility or other um, issues with their intestinal motility related to their mitochondrial disease. So we talked about Kristen talking today specifically not just about patients who already have um, a tube for tube feeding regimen in place, but also for the many families um, with children or many adult patients or family members who are thinking, you know, dysmotility is an issue, it's a part of my mitochondrial disease, but Maybe I haven't even seen a GI specialist, or maybe we haven't gone down the road of really appreciating whether or not tube feeding would be a strategy to help with the disease management. So I'm really excited about Kristen talking today. Kristen, before I hand it over to you, let me just remind everyone once again who's listening to our recording right now and live where they can find the slides. So if you're listening to us now, you can find the slides on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash mitoaction. That's always a great place to go to get the latest information. If you got an email from us, we recommend that you um, always sign up on our emails list, which you can do on the homepage on mitoaction. Then in that email that you got this morning, there's a link directly to the slides. Or if you're listening um, to this as a recording after the fact, you can go to mitoaction.org. Just search the word uh, diet, dysmotility, or tube feeding, any of those key terms in the little search box in the upper right-hand corner, and that's going to take you, the first hit will be today's discussion, diet, dysmotility, and tube feeding, and you'll see in the join us box how you can view the slides. If I'm talking too fast and you would just prefer that I email you the slides, or if you have questions during our presentation, we will have an opportunity for a Q&A at the end, but you can always email me your questions, director at mitoaction.org. Again, this is Christy, and I'd be glad to help you out. So Kristen, without further ado, we'll ask everybody to open up those slides, and I'll remind you that in the lower right-hand corner, there's a little double arrow that if you can click on that, then anyone who's following along, you can view full screen, and then you can just advance yourself with um, your arrows or your mouse, or if you're on your iPad or tablet, you can advance those slides yourself. So Kristen, thank you so much for joining us. I know we have a lot of wonderful ground to cover, so I'll hand it over to you. 
Okay, great. Well, first of all, I just want to thank, uh, thank you all for inviting me to speak today on, I think, this very important topic for people suffering from GI dysmotility. And I'm really hoping, um, as Christy mentioned, that after this presentation, that I not only provide you with some practical tips for really working on, to, working on improving the nutritional status of anybody that's, that's battling with uh, GI dysmotility, but also really focusing on preventing of any malnutrition um, from these types of symptoms that we see with uh, GI dysmotility. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and get started. Um, advancing to my disclaimer slide, this gives some disclaimers. I am a consultant, a GI consultant for ThriveRx, and these are some of our company disclosures related to industry and market data, forward-looking statements, and also medical advice. But as Christy said, we have a lot to cover, so I'm going to go ahead and get started um, looking at our first slide titled uh, Nutrition Support Options for Consumers with Dysmotility. And I really like to start here to kind of introduce exactly what we're talking about when we say the words nutrition support. So nutrition support can mean diet, it can mean enteral nutrition, parenteral nutrition, or intravenous nutrition, and I'll kind of walk you through each of these now. So diet is the first type of nutrition support that consumers with dysmotility can really work on to help improve the motility of their gastrointestinal tract. So we can make alterations to the diet, and those can be nutrient-specific, such as making changes and the total grams of fiber that you're consuming as part of your diet or looking at the amount or the concentration of fat that is in each of the meals. We know that both fiber and fat can alter motility a little bit, and we're going to talk more in detail about that as we move through the presentation. We can also ensure that uh, a patient is receiving adequate hydration and really work towards increasing total fluid um, intake to make sure that we're preventing any um, dehydration. And then lastly, looking at diet, there are different types of dietary modifications and tactics that we can kind of use to improve the overall absorption and motility. And some of these you've probably heard of before, but we try to encourage people to consume small frequent meals. Maybe we try to encourage the consumption of fluids with solid foods to help move that food bolus through the gastrointestinal tract. And we'll talk more in detail about, about each of these as we move through. Enteral nutrition um, is another form of nutrition support, and this is really the topic of today's presentation where I'll focus the majority of my time talking. And enteral nutrition really is the delivery of nutrients or hydration through a feeding tube that is um, in the gastrointestinal tract. And it can be successfully used for patients who are able to take in some oral intake um, and also for those who cannot tolerate any oral intake of, of foods. Um, so you see it used in, in multiple scenarios. Parenteral nutrition is a form of nutrition that bypasses the gastrointestinal tract completely. And this type of delivery really allows for nutrients to be delivered directly into our venous system. And we can meet all or partial of our patient's nutritional needs through this route. 
And then the last option here of nutrition support is the use of IV hydration. So this includes the delivery of both fluids and electrolytes. So electrolytes um, are things like magnesium or potassium, and we can deliver these nutrients, again, directly into the venous system, and it can help us meet our nutritional needs when we can't do this just by diet or enteral nutrition alone. So again, the majority of our talk today is going to be focusing on the tube feedings, and we'll talk a little bit about diet and parental nutrition as well. But I do encourage you that um, if you're kind of new, uh, if ThriveRx is new to you, um, then I would visit our site at thriverx.net, and there are some pre-recorded modules on there related to diet therapy um, that may be of interest uh, to you as well that are geared more towards individuals with intestinal dysmotility. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and move on to the next slide and start talking about some of the benefits of nutrition support and why this is an important topic for us to be talking about today. So some of the... Um, you know, the general benefits of nutrition support is that it really provides an alternative route to get nutrition to somebody um, when they're not really eating well or they're unable to meet their demands of the body to maintain their nutritional status. So we can use nutrition support in that way to kind of bridge our needs. Nutrition support can also provide bowel rest. Um, sometimes a physician may recommend that we just rest the gastrointestinal tract for a period of time, and in those cases, we can use nutrition support to kind of bypass the, the gastrointestinal tract. And then lastly, um, it can also improve surgical outcomes. Um, so if somebody is going to require surgery and they are malnourished, then oftentimes we can provide nutrition support to those patients ahead of time before they get their surgery to work on improving their nutritional status. And then we see improvements in those surgical outcomes. So for those scenarios, we do have guidelines out there that clinicians will use to help really guide them when nutrition support is helpful for different surgical situations. So now that we've talked about some of the benefits, we're going to move on to talk about how we actually go about getting nutrition support started if, if we feel like it's necessary. So this decision is a difficult one, and it's usually centered around a nutrition care team that's been working with a particular individual. Um, they'll kind of look at all the different types of um, the different types of anatomy that the patient may have and where, their, um, where the disease may be affecting their gastrointestinal tract. So during this assessment, um, usually um, they start with just a, a general evaluation of gastrointestinal function. So you might have imaging um, that is, uh, is required for this, for this part of the assessment. And then we kind of move through different parts of the overall nutritional status of the individual. So we'll look at diet and weight history. So we might look at what the individual has been eating recently, what they were eating a few years back, um, how their weight has looked over the years, when, when were some times where the energy level was good, when the weight was at a good healthy weight. We'll kind of look at all of those different scenarios. We'll assess any food allergies. We'll look at meal patterns. So are the sizes of the meals appropriate? How many times a day? Um, is the individual trying to eat. We may look at medication history, and usually this is done in collaboration with a physician and a pharmacist to look at the types of medications that have been used and the dosing regimens that have been tried in the past. 
We may look at laboratory data. So some laboratory data can tell us about um, hydration status. So we can look at kidney function. We can also look at liver function and any abnormalities in vitamin or mineral levels or those electrolyte levels that we were talking about earlier. So we'll kind of include those in this assessment part. And then we'll also look at bowel movement patterns. So is the individual having a bowel movement on a daily basis, a weekly basis, or, or fewer and far in between than that? After we go through that part of the assessment, then we start looking at the symptoms, and we try to identify trigger points um, where these symptoms start occurring. So, for instance, if, if we have somebody that um, has a lot of abdominal cramping, then we may look at particular foods that the person was eating before that um, abdominal cramping uh, presented itself. So we try to make some um, some comparisons there with what the individual is eating and what their symptoms are to see if we can identify any of these trigger foods. So after we go through this full assessment, um, we kind of make the decision at that point on whether or not we feel that nutrition support will be something that this individual would benefit for, benefit from. So in the situation where we feel like the individual would benefit from enteral nutrition, then we're going to start on this process of determining how we're going to get this um, solution started. Now moving on to the next slide where we look at the benefits of enteral nutrition. When we go through this assessment process, we are always trying to find a way to use the gastrointestinal tract if at all possible. And that's because there are so many benefits of enteral nutrition that we know of. First of all, if you use the gastrointestinal tract, it helps to maintain the health of that organ. Um, using the gastrointestinal tract can also reduce the inflammatory process. So that's another benefit that we see with utilizing the GI tract. Um, lining our gastrointestinal tract, we have these little finger-like projections, and they're called villi, and they line the small intestine, and what they do is they kind of grab food and nutrients as it's moving through the GI tract. If food isn't going through the GI tract because we're not utilizing it, then sometimes those villi can start to get smaller and smaller. So utilizing the gastrointestinal tract continues to keep those villi um, stimulated and um, continue to be uh, growing so they can keep absorbing the nutrients in our diet. Um, also, using the gastrointestinal tract helps to improve um, GI transit time, so how quickly something moves from our mouth um, to our rectum and anus in the movement of a bowel movement. It's also cost-effective, so when we look at the price of enteral nutrition versus some of the um, intravenous therapies, this is a more cost-effective therapy as well. Um, so lots of benefits there um, that, that we always keep in mind when we're assessing the gastrointestinal tract, hoping that we can utilize it for the delivery of the nutrition. Okay. So moving on to the next slide, um, we are going to talk about some of the tube feedings. And um, we're going to start off by looking at how we select the type of formula that will be delivered through the tube. So the selection of that enteral nutrition formula is dependent mainly on the gastrointestinal anatomy. So we'll look to see if the patient has had any resections or removal of any parts of their gastrointestinal tract. In the cases where no um, surgeries have 
have the patient hasn't undergone any surgeries, then we start looking at which parts of the gastrointestinal tract are actually affected by the underlying condition. So is the dysmotility really localized to the stomach? Is it more localized to the colon? Or are we seeing it distributed throughout the entire gastrointestinal tract, the stomach, the esophagus, the small intestine, the large intestine? So we try to look at those affected areas. Once we kind of have an understanding of, of the affected areas, then we start looking at the different types of formulas that are available. So there are multiple companies out there that um, that have products out on the market that we can use to administer um, these formulas through the enteral feeding tube. Some of those characteristics of those formulas that are out there are how the nutrients are delivered. So there are some products that have intact nutrients, which is really similar to eating food. It's almost like a blenderized type food product. We have a polymeric type formula, and those are partially digested nutrients, but they're, they're largely intact as well. Then we have hydrolyzed or semi-elemental or elemental formulas, and these are where the food is almost completely broken down and digested into its individual nutrients. Um, so those are the three different ways that we can kind of see that these nutrients are provided in the enteral nutrition formulations. The next things that we'll kind of look at as uh, as a provider is we'll look at the osmolality of the solution. So this is just kind of a fancy word for concentration. So we'll look at how many parts or pieces of nutrients are in a, a certain volume, and that, that can be telling to us on what a patient might be able to tolerate. And then we look at the fiber content. So some of these enteral formulas contain fiber and others do not. And as we start talking about the fiber later on in the presentation, you'll see where this kind of comes into play with um, consumers that have intestinal dysmotility. Okay. So moving on to the next slide, um, looking at the delivery of enteral nutrition. So once we've figured out which formula or fluid that we're going to use, uh, we need to determine how we're going to actually deliver that solution. And so this uh, significantly depends on how long a consumer is anticipated to need the therapy. So length of therapy is our first item to consider um, when determining how to deliver the enteral nutrition. So is it thought that the patient is only going to need this for a couple of weeks or a couple of months, or are we thinking that this is going to be several months to years, or is this going to be a lifelong therapy? So we try to determine ahead of time how long we think we're going to need the therapy for. Once we kind of have an idea on this, then um, we need to decide how we're going to deliver the enteral nutrition. So there are three main ways to deliver the formula, and that is either through a bolus um, delivery, which is taking a certain volume of that formula and pushing it through the tube all at one time. This type of feeding almost represents how a breakfast, a lunch, and a dinner would be. Um, you can also do a gravity drip, which is where the formula is hanging in a bag, and it uses gravity to kind of drip through the tube into the gastrointestinal tract. Or the enteral nutrition can be delivered um, through a continuous infusion using a pump. And I think this is probably one of the more common ways that we see enteral nutrition delivered in an individual with dysmotility. 
So a common delivery method in this scenario is that we'll use a continuous infusion over a 12-hour period, and many people choose to do that overnight while they're sleeping. Um, so then they can be disconnected from the feeding tube during the day and kind of go about their usual activities. So once we've discovered, um, you know, once we've determined the length of therapy and the delivery method for the formula, then we need to look at which type of feeding tube needs to be placed in the individual so that they can get the central nutrition. So as I had mentioned, this is usually determined upon the, upon the length of therapy that it's going to be needed for. Um, so oftentimes with consumers with dysmotility that we need to kind of trial enteral nutrition for the first time. So we want to use a very temporary tube that's really easy to place and, and low risk to make sure that the patient is going to be able to tolerate the feedings before we go through a more invasive type um, procedure to place a feeding tube. So that's going to move us on to our next slide where you can see the image there of the gastrointestinal tract and we're going to talk about the different enteral tube um, locations. So there are three main options for placing the tube, and one is through the nose, and those tubes often have the word nasal um, in them somewhere, or through the stomach, those are considered gastric tubes, or into the small intestine. So we'll start off by talking about the nasal insertion. So this is a tube that is inserted through the nose and it's passed down through the esophagus to either the stomach, and if the tube en ends in the stomach, it's called a nasogastric tube, or you can push the tube down further into the first part of the small intestine, which is called the duodenum, and this is called a nasal duodenal tube. And if we push the tube down even a little bit further into the second part of the small intestine, which is called the jejunum, this tube is called a nasal jejunal tube. So the tube is commonly called by where it is inserted and where the tip of the feeding tube ends. So all of these tubes are considered um, temporary tubes. They have fairly low risk, and they're all inserted through, again, through the nose and en ending somewhere in the gastrointestinal tract. Now the next type of insertion is the gastric insertion. And this is a tube that's inserted directly into the stomach, either um, in radiology or it can be placed endoscopically by a gastroenterologist or a surgeon. And these tubes are called percutaneous gastrostomies. If they're placed surgically, um, then this tube is called a surgical gastrostomy. But the gastric tubes are commonly placed in consumers that either have malabsorption syndrome, so they have lots of diarrhea, because it allows for a longer period of the gastrointestinal tract to come in contact with the formula, so you usually see improved absorption. Um, you can also see the use of the stomach, um, you, you know, feeding the stomach to be very useful because it can help control how quickly the formula is moving through the gastrointestinal tract. So when we do that assessment of the gastrointestinal tract prior to placing the tube, one of the things we think about is, is the stomach functioning? And if it is functioning, we're going to try to choose to feed the stomach so we can get these benefits um, from utilizing that organ. And then last, uh, lastly, the, the last tube that's pictured here um, 
this is a tube that's inserted directly into the small intestine. So if the tube is in the duodenum, it's called a duodenostomy. And if the tube is placed into the jejunum, it's called a jejunostomy. Um, and these types of tubes are commonly placed when the stomach is malfunctioning. So if you see um, individuals that have gastroparesis or delayed gastric emptying or severe upper GI motility, you may see that the physicians will recommend a feeding tube being placed directly into the small intestine. Okay, so now we're going to move on to the next slide, um, which talks about the benefits of early tube placement. And I think this is a really important slide, particularly for this for this group. Um, so deciding on placing an enteral feeding tube, again, requires that full assessment as we discussed. The main goal for a provider is to prevent malnutrition in a patient that's at risk for developing nutrient imbalances due to prolonged um, poor oral intake. So essentially, you know, a provider is looking to see has the nutritional intake of a patient been slowly declining over time? Um, and are we starting to see any nutrient imbalances or deficiencies or continued weight loss from that prolonged poor oral intake? The placement of a feeding tube in this group of patients can really help to prevent dehydration and electrolyte abnormalities. Again, electrolytes are those nutrients like potassium and magnesium. And we can also see that we can prevent further weight loss or any weight loss. And instead of waiting until a patient has already experienced severe unintentional weight loss, this can also be used to prevent malnutrition and improve fatigue, especially when we see that the oral intake has been pretty poor for a long period of time or, you know, in the weeks prior to starting enteral nutrition. So we can start to see really um, good improvements in, in fatigue response. And then lastly, as I mentioned, there is a low risk associated with the placement of these nasally inserted tubes. So they can easily be placed um, and you know, the individual can be monitored for assessment um, to make sure that they're tolerating their enteral formula. Once we make sure that the patient is able to tolerate the enteral formula, then we can start deciding about the placement of a long-term feeding tube if that's needed. So there's lots of benefits to placing the tube early. And again, I think that goes back to more proactive and preventative measures instead of waiting until um, malnutrition has already presented itself. Okay, so we've talked a lot about tolerance, and I haven't really defined what I mean when I'm saying tolerance. So um, this slide, determining the tolerance of enteral nutrition, I'm going to kind of work to address that here. Um, so how, how does a provider, when they start a patient on enteral nutrition, determine that they're actually responding well to that formula? The first thing that you'll see that happens is that a physical exam will be completed by the provider where they're going to be assessing the belly and the abdomen to make sure that the belly is fairly soft and that it's not distended and hard. They'll also look at laboratory measurements before, during, and after the enteral nutrition um, infusion and to, to kind of see if there are any signs of malabsorption or dehydration that are occurring. Um, we'll also be monitoring weight, so we'll look at weight changes, and um, we, oftentimes this is done on a daily basis inside the hospital, but oftentimes we also ask patients once they get home to monitor their weight from time to time. 
if we see a rapid weight shift of two pounds or more within a 24-hour period, usually that's related to fluid retention and not necessarily true weight gain. So we try to set the enteral nutrition regimen where we see a very slow um, weight gain of about a half of a pound to a pound per week, and sometimes a little bit more depending on um, the individual the individual patient. We'll also look at the number of bowel movements and the characteristics of the stool to help us determine if the patient is responding well to the enteral nutrition. So um, in some cases, this is if patients have several watery bowel movements, we're looking at improvements in the thickness of the stool. And if we have patients that are dealing more with constipation, um, then we look for increased frequency of bowel movements and, again, a resolution of that distended um, hard abdomen. And then lastly, we look at the hydration status. So we do that, again, from laboratory measurements, but we also may have individuals um, keep track of their stool output and their urine output just for a couple of days to make sure that they're making adequate urine and that we're providing enough hydration through the enteral nutrition solution. So if... If we determine from our assessment that the individual's not tolerating the enteral nutrition, what, where do we go from there? So if we move on to the next slide, improving tolerance to enteral nutrition, um, usually when this happens, we don't just give up and say that enteral nutrition is not an option for that individual. There are many tools that are out there that clinicians can use to help try to improve the tolerance to these um, solutions. The negative side to this trial you know, trialing these different tools is that it takes time to tweak these enteral nutrition regimens and to improve the tolerance. And what we find is that this is, um, you know, not only frustrating on the provider part, but this is very frustrating on the on the individual who is receiving the formula and on the family members because it just takes time to see if we can improve the response. And in some consumers, we can see that they fail multiple therapies for improving tolerance before we find one that works. So again, that could be um, exhausting to the individual and the family. So some of the ways that we work on improving tolerance is first and foremost, we look at the diet that the individual is consuming. So we could be providing the most perfect solution um, through that enteral tube, and the individual could be eating something that promotes more dysmotility. So we'll always kind of assess the diet and see if there's anything that we can adjust to help improve that enteral nutrition tolerance. We can also change the type of formula that we're using. So again, I talked to you about how there's intact and polymeric and elemental formulas, some that have high osmolality, some that have low osmolality, some that have fiber and some that don't. So there's lots of options of different types of formulas that are out there. So we can change those if we feel like it may be um, that the individual isn't responding well to that particular formula. We can also add modulars like protein or extra fiber or fat to um, the tube feeding formula that can be delivered through the tube. We can modify the rate of infusion. So enteral formula that's infused too quickly can lead to more diarrhea. Um, and in some cases, uh, in you know, rapid infusions end up working okay for an individual, but sometimes these slow trickle feeds that I was talking about that we can give people overnight to supplement their oral diet um, are, are very uh, useful in, in these clinical scenarios. 
We can look at the head of the bed and make sure that when the tube feeding is infusing that the individual is sitting at an upright angle and that, again, helps gravity and helps the stomach empty and the small intestine empty the formula as it's moving through the GI tract. And then lastly, and again, usually under the guidance of a physician and a pharmacist, we can talk about adding different types of medications to improve absorption or to increase um, or decrease the transit time. And a lot of times we see that medications are needed um, in conjunction with the enteral nutrition formula. Okay, so now we'll move on to the next slide, and I want to talk a little bit more about the impact of diet on enteral nutrition tolerance, because like I said, I, th I think that we see this probably the most common um, as uh, a reason that somebody is not tolerating their formula. So the first thing that we try to do is that when an individual is receiving a tube feeding and they're also on diet, or let's just say they're just on diet, that we will start them on small frequent meals, usually the smaller volume of about a fourth of a cup to a half of a cup of a particular food given at a time um, is fairly easy to tolerate. So if we do these small frequent portion sizes, we're more likely to see um, less abdominal pain and less cramping and less um, signs of dysmotility. So we'll always kind of work on increasing the number of meals and maybe decreasing the size of the meals. We'll continue to add new foods to the diet. Um, so if you've gone through periods of time where you, you've tried to figure out exactly what in the diet that seems to be triggering the negative symptoms, you may be limiting a lot of the foods that um, that you're trying or that your child is trying. So it's okay to retrial these foods that you've pulled out of the diet um, if you were previously able to, you know, to tolerate, unable to tolerate those foods at one time. Sometimes retrialing a food, but again, using a smaller amount um, may be able to increase the variety of foods in the diet. Next, we make sure that people are chewing their food really well. So chewing is the first step in digestion, and it can make a huge difference in GI tolerance. So you almost want to over-chew your food to make sure that you're really making it easier on the stomach and the small intestine as that food is getting broken down and moving through the GI tract. Um, liquids tend to be a little bit more easier to tolerate, um, and oftentimes we can use liquids to help improve the total caloric intake of an individual. So with dysmotility, it's not uncommon that as the day progresses, that fatigue increases or that that feeling of fullness increases. So one tactic is try switching over to more liquid-type meals. So this could be shakes or juices or, or higher-fat milks or maybe this is supplement um, beverages that you can drink. So you may try to increase the consumption of those types of foods as the day progresses. Now, if this is something that you think you know might you might benefit from, then I would recommend that you talk with either your physician or a dietitian specifically to determine how much of these types of beverages you should be consuming to make sure that you're meeting your nutritional needs. And then lastly, um, again, not lying down after a meal. So we want to make sure that gravity is on our side and that we're up and walking around as much as we can to help the food move through the GI tract. 
So continuing on the same topic of diet, I want to talk a little bit more about dietary fiber. Um, so why is this something that we need to talk about for consumers with dysmotility? So fiber um, can slow the movement of food throughout the GI tract, and there's a couple reasons for this. First of all, some of the types of fibers that we consume in our diet attract water and they form a gel within the stomach and or the intestine and that really moves the the or slows down the movement of that food throughout the GI tract. So if you think of um you know sucking water up through a straw or sucking like jello up through a straw, the water is going to move through a lot quicker. So the same type of thing happens in dysmotility is where you see that fiber just slowing the movement of things down even further. Also, we know from a large body of literature that patients that are on a high-fiber diet that have intestinal dysmotility or malabsorption, meaning diarrhea, that they experience more abdominal pain and discomfort um, and nausea and vomiting, and all four of those symptoms contribute to poor oral intake. And so it's kind of this vicious cycle. You're eating the fiber, it's making you feel sick, so you're not wanting to eat. And then you can start seeing the malnutrition occur after that. So because I think this is a really important nutrient to be able to identify, I've included a table here. On the left of the table, you can see all the different food groups, starting with the grains and moving all the way through to the meat, fish, eggs, and poultry. In the middle column, it's foods to avoid. So the foods to avoid category, these are all things that are fibrous materials or dif difficult to digest. So whole grains and popcorn and the skins and seeds of fruits and vegetables, sometimes those things could um, be very difficult on the gastrointestinal tract and slow down that motility. So you can kind of look at the foods to avoid section. Now, within each of those food groups, we also have the foods to choose section because so often um, patients say, well, you told me what we couldn't eat, but you didn't tell me what I can eat. So this is a whole list of foods that are usually fairly easy to tolerate. And again, we just need to make sure that the portion size is not too large, but usually refined grain products like white bread and white rice and crackers, pretzels, cereals are usually fairly easy to tolerate canned or cooked fruits or vegetables or casseroles where the fruit and vegetables are very soft. Um, dairy is usually not a problem um, for dysmotility consumers unless you have a lactose intolerance. So usually dairy is kind of an as an as-tolerated type food. And then for the meats category, although meats don't contain fiber, tough cuts of meat can be very difficult to chew if you think about chewing a tough cut of meat um, versus something that's cooked in a very moist cooking method, like in a crock pot or a stew or something like that. That softer meat is easier to chew. It's easier to break down as it's moving through your gastrointestinal tract. So the next nutrient that I want to talk about that is equally as important as fiber is the dietary fat. So for those of you that are having difficulty tolerating certain amounts of dietary fat or are looking at ways to increase the calories in their in their diet, um, this slide I think is going to be important for you. So we know, again, from a lot of literature in this area that consumers that have dysmotility that are on a very high-fat diet also experience those same symptoms that we see that fiber creates, abdominal pain, discomfort, nausea, and vomiting. So because of that, uh, we'll start looking at the fat content of the diet. 
Now, one thing that we know that's a little bit different from fiber is that oftentimes liquid fats like oils or the type of fat that's in milk or a supplement beverage or a tube feeding formula, that those liquid fats will kind of move through the GI tract fairly at a fairly decent rate compared to when they're intact is like what you would see like in a fried food or um, high fat cookies or crackers or something like that. So again, we have the list here on the bottom of the of that slide that shows you the food groups on the left, the foods to avoid that tend to be higher in fat that you should at least be looking at the nutrition facts label for, um, and then foods to choose. So with with each of these categories, you're kind of, um, you know, working at making sure that when you're preparing the grains, the fruits, the vegetables, the meats, that you're avoiding a lot of added fat to those meals where you're increasing that concentration of, of fat in the diet, which can be promoting, again, um, worsening dysmotility. So that's just a, a, a nice table, I think, to help go along with the dietary fiber table as well. So the next slide is looking at medications for consumers with dysmotility, and we're not going to talk extensively on this list, but I think that this is a slide that I like to keep in for this talk to make um, listeners aware that there are several different types of medications that can be used to help improve motility. And it's not a bad idea to sit down with your physician and talk about these different classes of medications and kind of talk about what you've tried in the past and what's worked and what hasn't worked. And um, um, even if, you know, you've exhausted this list, it still makes for good conversation with the physician that they can kind of educate you on why this medication is appropriate for you or not appropriate for you and when they tried it, why it worked or why it didn't work. And it's a good educational experience. So you can take a look at, um, at any of these classes of, of medications. And now we're going to move on to the hydration component of enteral nutrition. So... Another type of enteral nutrition that we can provide somebody um, that maybe we're not giving one of those types of formulas that have all of the intact nutrients in there, but we're just really focusing on delivering hydration. Um, this is another tactic, another tool that we can use to help Im improve motility and improve um, hydrational status. So this is uh, literally a delivery of only fluids and sometimes fluids and electrolytes into the gastrointestinal tract. It's been specifically effective for consumers that are actively working on rehabilitating their intestine to come off of IV nutrition or that parenteral nutrition. But there are many types of consumers that may benefit from this type of hydration as well, and I have some of those that are listed here. So consumers that can maintain their body weight, but they battle with recurrent dehydration. So thinking that, you know, times where you've had to go to the emergency room for IV fluids, or perhaps you battle um, different times where your urine output seems to drop or you're feeling really thirsty and fatigued related to hydration status. And this might be a therapy that's beneficial for you. Um, also, consumers that are unable to meet all of their hydration needs with either their enteral formula alone um, or through diet and their enteral formula. So sometimes we may sub supplement extra fluids through that tube to help meet their nutritional needs. And then lastly, for consumers that are on parenteral nutrition, so again, that's that IV delivery of, of nutrients, that are unable to tolerate enteral nutrition formulas with those nutrient, with more of the nutrients, the protein, carbohydrates, and fat in them, 
but they want to keep utilizing their gastrointestinal tract to maintain those benefits, um, then sometimes enteral hydration will be um, a little bit more easily tolerated, and so that can also be trialed in an individual. So you can use the tube for hydration, you can use it for nutrients, you can use it for both. And in some cases, when um, the individual is still having difficulties maintaining their hydration status or maintaining their nutritional status or body weight on enteral nutrition, then we might need to use parenteral nutrition. And that's the next slide here that I'm going to discuss. So again, parental nutrition is that delivery of nutrients or fluids directly into the bloodstream. And this therapy is used primarily for individuals that are unable to either maintain enteral access for various reasons, so that, that feeding tube um, is just not working out for a variety of reasons, um, and the gastrointestinal tract is not functional. So this therapy also has several benefits, just like enteral nutrition has several benefits. And we really find that this is a life-saving form of nutrition for individuals that are really just unable to use their gastrointestinal tract efficiently. Um, it can also prevent electrolyte abnormalities and in, for individuals that have had recurrent um, emergency room visits for electrolyte abnormalities, it can work on preventing hospitalizations. And then in addition to the electrolyte abnormalities, we see that parenteral nutrition can prevent dehydration and hospitalizations due to dehydration. Um, the prevention of the electrolyte abnormalities and dehydration are probably one of the biggest improvements in the quality of life that we see for consumers that um, report after starting on parenteral nutrition that they were able to reduce these hospital admissions um, when they're suffering from their, their GI dysmotility. And then lastly, we have combination therapy. So combination therapy is when we use um, different tactics for enteral nutrition delivery and parenteral nutrition delivery at the same time. And this can be a, a useful therapy to help bridge a consumer that is transitioning off parenteral nutrition and trying to get back to using their gastrointestinal tract. And it can also be used for individuals that have a functioning lower gastrointestinal tract, but they're unable to maintain their nutritional status without IV support. So they may be getting the majority of their calories through the tube feeding, and then they're provided um, IV hydration um, through a catheter to help maintain their hydration status. So for those individuals that are receiving um, parenteral nutrition and that are working on transitioning to enteral nutrition, there's a couple of different ways that we can go about doing this. Um, one is that we can... Um, we can reduce the parenteral nutrition volume and the nutrients as we're increasing the nutrients that are being delivered through the tube. This is a more gradual shift that basically reduces one therapy while increasing the other. This is often how you see a transition occurring if a patient is hospitalized. It's a little bit more difficult to transition this way when an individual is at home. So another way that we can kind of transition somebody from parenteral nutrition to enteral nutrition is that we use what we call a parenteral nutrition holiday. Um, so this is essentially allowing an individual to not infuse their IV nutrition for one day a week, and we kind of watch their hydration status on that day and their electrolyte status and see if they're able to increase some oral fluid consumption or some enteral fluid consumption during that time. If that 
um, PN holiday goes well, then we start to increase the PN infusion days um, more and more. So we may increase or decrease the PN to four days a week or three days a week. And then usually once we get to somewhere right around three days a week, we try to discontinue the IV nutrition and just let the gastrointestinal tract take over. So lots of different ways um, ways there that we can kind of attack this. So I want to move into two different case studies to kind of pull together all of the diet and enteral nutrition um, and parenteral nutrition um, ideas and, and tips that we kind of talked about today to see how we can put this into practice. So the first patient that I'm going to present um, is a 46-year-old male with severe gastroparesis. Um, he's had gastroparesis for three years, and he's had a gradual weight loss. He's now at about 84% of his goal body weight. Um, he's tried several medications to assist with improving the gastric emptying, and he hasn't really seen much improvement. So after meeting with a dietitian on several occasions, he was placed on a full liquid diet. After two weeks of trialing that liquid diet, he was still having significant vomiting. When we looked at his laboratory parameters, we could see that he was becoming dehydrated and that some of his electrolytes were becoming abnormal. So after discussion of the plan of care with his nutrition care team, so the physicians and the nurses and the case managers and the pharmacists, it was determined that the dysmotility was primarily only affecting his stomach, and therefore the remaining sections of his gastrointestinal tract were still functioning. So what we tried to do in this patient is that we placed a tube through the nose, um, down the esophagus, through the stomach to that second part of the small intestine called the jejunum, and we started feeding enteral nutrition through that tube. When the patient came in for his one-month follow-up, um, he was NPO, so we weren't allowing him to take in anything by mouth because we really wanted to be able to fully assess the tolerance to the enteral nutrition. Um, we had him on a continuous nighttime infusion of a polymeric formula, so that was one of those formulas that has um, the nutrients fairly intact, partially digested. At his two-month follow-up, we noticed that he was um, tolerating his enteral nutrition at his goal rate, and he was, re he was infusing that formula for those 12 hours overnight. So he was disconnected during the day, um, and he really liked that ability of not having to have that pump or that tube connected to him um, um, during the day. So at this point, we started allowing him to reintroduce his oral diet. So he started taking in sips of liquids by mouth. And he could tolerate up to about a half a cup of fluids every few hours without any increase in nausea or vomiting. So at this point, since he was tolerating the, the formula well, we decided to place a more permanent feeding tube. So we placed a percutaneous endoscopic gastrostomy with a jejunal extension um, so that we were the tube was entering the stomach but the tip of the tube was in that second part of his um, of his small intestine. At his third month follow-up, he had made significant improvements in his weight. He was now up to 95% of his goal weight, and he was noticing improvements in his chronic fatigue, enough so that he was able to return um, back to work a little bit. So he's now able to take in small bites of some low-fat, low-fiber foods, and he's still drinking some fluids, and 
um, during this process, his gastroenterologist kind of restarted some of these prokinetic agents, these medications, to see if we can continue to work on improving the motility of the stomach. So that is one example of a patient that really had their dysmotility localized to their stomach. Now, I want to go through a patient with mitochondrial disease. So this is a 26-year-old female, and she also had severe GI dysmotility from Minji syndrome, and she also had failure to thrive and loss of muscle mass. Because of the severe GI dysmotility and failure to thrive, she was on parenteral nutrition for the last four years. So four years proximal to, to where we're going to start looking at her, she had already had a decline in her weight and um, some malnutrition. So she had been relying primarily on that IV nutrition for four years. But her goal um, that, you know, she made very um, well-known to her nutrition care team was that she wanted to reduce her PN infusion days to improve her sleeping habits and quality of life because she felt like she was getting up and, and urinating a lot in the middle of the night. So she went and visited an intestinal rehabilitation center because she was a very complex GI case. They completed a full assessment of her gastrointestinal tract, and the clinical team suggested placing a nasogastric feeding tube to see if her GI tract could tolerate any enteral nutrition. They again used a polymeric formula um, as the first trial for her enteral nutrition. So when she came in for her one-month follow-up, she was able to tolerate about 25% of her enteral nutrition goals. She was getting some mild diarrhea and a little bit of nausea, um, but it was decided to progress her feeding tube into the jejunum to see if we can kind of improve some of the, at least the nausea that she was experiencing. So when she came back in for her second month follow-up, we see that she was able to tolerate about 50% of her enteral nutrition goals, and her nausea was improved. So feeding past the stomach helped her. She did have an increase in her diarrhea, though, at this point. So we actually used a soluble fiber supplement, um, and it, we used a small amount to see if we could get her stools to gel up a little bit. As we talked about, that's one of the functions of fiber. Um, and we noticed that uh, her she was starting to gain weight and her hydration status was looking really good. So we took her parental nutrition formula and decreased her down to six days per week for two weeks, and then she was still doing well, so we decreased her then to five days per week for two weeks. At this time, we also placed a long-term feeding tube once we saw that she was um, doing okay on the five days per week. So at her three-month follow-up, um, she was tolerating about 50% of her enteral nutrition, and it was recommended to decrease her parenteral nutrition to three days per week. She was having some difficulty maintaining her hydration status on the days when she was not receiving that parental nutrition solution. So the home care pharmacy sent her some bags of IV fluid that she could use as needed at home. So she was still only on the parental nutrition three, three days a week. Um, her weight continues to be monitored, and we make slow adjustments to her enteral nutrition formula in effort to maximize her GI tract function. Um, but she does report that she's feeling a little bit better because she's getting more sleep now that our uh, TPN is reduced to fewer days per week. So it's two different types of cases, two different types of tactics that were used to improve enteral nutrition tolerance. So taking that today and kind of trying to summarize all that we've talked about today, there are many nutrition support options that are available out there for consumers with intestinal failure or severe GI dysmotility, regardless of the, the underlying cause of that motility, of that dysmotility. 
transitioning nutrition support, when we move from parental nutrition to enteral nutrition or enteral nutrition to diet, takes time to determine tolerance. Um, so it can be a lengthy process. And I would recommend that for very complex cases, that working with a team of clinicians that specializes in intestinal rehabilitation and dysmotility is a really important um, piece of that puzzle. So in saying that, um, the last slide here that I, that's on our, our PowerPoint today is just the mission of our company. So again, I'm a consultant for Thrive Rx. Our mission is to optimize the nutritional well-being of our consumers through our customized approach while maintaining the highest standards in service and clinical care. Our mission is fulfilled by our outstanding team who put our consumers at the center of what we do and work towards improving the quality of their lives. So if you have any questions on programs or services that we have available or any of our educational series, feel free to call us at the phone number um, listed on this slide or email us at info at thriverx.net. So at this time, um, we'll hand it back to you, Christy. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Kristen. This was really informative, and I imagine that we have some questions from our listeners, so I'm going to open up the lines for some questions. And I just want to reiterate that um, two things. One, Kristen, you really conveyed how it is a case-by-case um, consideration on you know what the best approach is, so I encourage patients and families to um, use the resources that ThriveRx has to offer because it, it can help quite a bit in you helping to go down that road and have someone who is very knowledgeable and has a lot of experience with other patients with different types of dysmotility to help guide you. And then the second thing is um, when you ask your questions now, please remember that we are being recorded, so you may want to frame your question in a more general manner. And then if you have specific questions, then um, Kristen has provided the phone number and an email address there on slide 27. So let me just open up the line for um, our callers. I'll remind you guys that if you're listening in and you have background noise, dogs, kids, you know, outside work, whatever, um, you can use star six to mute and unmute your own phone just to help us preserve the call quality. Okay, so um, our lines are open now. So who would like to ask the first question? Um, I have a question for you, Christy. Um, does ThriveRx offer motility rehab? ThriveRx has a comprehensive educational program on the nutritional management of both malabsorptive syndromes through our Maximize Health program and through intestinal dysmotility through our iThrive program. Um, but it's, it's mainly geared towards uh, nutritional management, nutritional improvement. So they don't have the actual medical therapies or physicians that are um, – are actually doing any type of rehabilitation. So you'd need to talk with your physician about different centers that are near you that may have those services. Um, but definitely for the nutritional management, you know, Thrive has those, those two programs available. And backing up just for anyone who's listening, um, Kristen, tell us what motility rehab is, what that means. Yeah, so motility rehab, I think, if I defined it, is really trying to use a combination of, you know, some type of nutrition support, whether that's diet or enteral or parenteral nutrition, 
medical management, whether that is through, um, you know, surgical techniques or medical techniques, and then also pharmacological management where different types of medications can be used to help improve the motility. So it's kind of looking at um, all the different types of, of um, providers that are out there and how they can offer their, their piece of the puzzle to helping improve the motility of the GI tract. Very good. Thank you. Great question. Who else would like to ask a question? I do have another one. Um, Go ahead. It's it's about the formulas. Do you provide these formulas through Thrive Rx? The intact, the um, besides the intral, the elemental formulas. Yeah. So. Um, Thrive Rx is a is a home care company, and we can provide uh, delivery of any of these types of enteral formulas to a patient. So typically, how it works is that um, once the nutrition care team for that patient has um, determined that they are going to move forward with the placing of an enteral feeding tube, and the dietitian has recommended a particular formula, um, those orders are then sent over to Thrive, and the Thrive clinicians and dietitians have uh, a special, you know, this is their specialty areas in intestinal failure. So they work very closely with all the patients and that physician who ordered the enteral formula to make sure that our patients are tolerating it. And they'll work with you on, on, on tweaking things to improve the tolerance. So, yeah, all of those different types of formulas can be provided through um, Thrive Rx. again, just in conjunction working with the managing physician. Great, um, and and happy to have those those questions. This is what that Q and A is for. Yeah, it's a good who, question. Who else would like to ask a question? Yeah, I'm going to jump in, Kristen. I have a, a question that is uh, just based on experience helping patients. Mm-hmm. Going back to one of your earlier slides, you talked about, you know, how do you start this process and physical exam and so forth. Um, I think it's it can be a very gray area of knowing when to pull the trigger for um, a tube feeding. So I wanted you to right. talk a little bit about, you know, do you go by weight loss? Do you go by nausea and symptoms of the dysmotility? I mean, for a family who was advocating for themselves, a patient or for their child, you know, what kind of recommendations would you give them as to know how assertive to be and what are right. some kind of critical decisions, decision-making, you know, thresholds? Right, right. It, I, 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 I think that this is such an important component of the lecture today too because this is this is the challenging part for I think for both patients and providers is when do we finally make that call that we should initiate nutrition support and I think that if you are somebody who is um you know we're, we're make, trying to make the decision on whether or not we should be starting enteral nutrition. So we're not going to talk about parenteral nutrition in the response in my response for this um, this question. So when we're looking at to start enteral nutrition, you know, there's little risk associated with starting this type of nutrition. So as I was telling you, you know, we trial the tube through the nose um, into the gastrointestinal tract, and it's essentially taking food that is either you know br- partially broken down or fully broken down that we're administering through that tube. So it's just like 
normal food hitting the gastrointestinal tract. And again, it's low risk with that nasal tube. So I think when making the decision to trial enteral nutrition, some of the things that you can look at are, you know, as, as a parent or as the patient, have you just noticed that over time the oral intake is just getting smaller and smaller that it's becoming more of a challenge on your end to really encourage the patient or your child to keep eating. Um, and it, you know, like we're almost where it's like a daily battle. Um, so when you start, you know, a ni- like initially seeing those types of patterns emerging, I think that's a great time to have that first conversation with your managing physician. You know, just to bring it out on the table, have the physician talk with you about the risks and benefits of starting and what that actually means for the individual patient. Um, but oftentimes, parents and the patient themselves, they pick on this stuff, pick up on this stuff so much earlier than the provider is going to. The provider is looking at things that I talked about. They're looking at big weight changes, they're looking at electrolyte imbalances and poor hydration status and those types of things. But it's almost, you know, where where it's too late. Those problems are already happening. It's not not necessarily too late, but we could we could have prevented those things from happening if we would have picked up on that earlier. So I guess to kind of summarize, you know, I would say that once you start seeing these gradual declines in the amount of oral intake that either your child or you yourself are having and, um, you know, where it's starting to become a battle for you really to be working at getting in your oral intake, I think that is a good time to have this conversation with your managing medical team um, and trialing out uh, initiation of of the formula. And I would say that it's always an opportunity to get a second opinion as well. Um, I think when making this type of decision, it's it's always a, an opportunity to just ask for a second opinion re- re- regarding initiating the G tube or G tube placement, and um, and I think it's important to note that for patients with mitochondrial disease, um, you know the the GI tract is a muscle and it it can have erratic symptoms just like the muscles in your legs. So as patients know who have mito and they are kids or adult patients, that there are good days and there are bad days. And some days, you know, it's it's difficult to take a, a step or there's a lot of pain. And some days, um, you know, you've, you can do more than usual. Um, the GI tract is susceptible to those same physiologic influences. So if a patient with mitochondrial disease is sick or has that period of time before they're sick, what we call the prodromal period before a virus might, you know, um, be really symptomatic, or so, for example, then the GI tract is is just as, if not more, susceptible to symptoms than, you know, that, as other parts of the body, particularly for patients with mitochondrial disease. And right. the second part of that, I would say, is then that if there are um, it's a little bit of a trial and error approach, and I encourage patients to be open to trying um, the same or new feeding plan. You know, if if it hasn't worked before, then um, that doesn't mean that it won't work again. I mean, there is a little bit of a, a patience required. Um, I, I think that one of the things that I worry about, and um, and we can talk about this briefly, is Sometimes families know, or as you said, they have that sense, Kristen, that there's 
something not right. And they can see, because we see day-to-day in our kids, for example, just the the slow, progressive decline, you know. Um, and we're doing a good job not saying, oh, we've lost 15 pounds for a 30-pound child, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the very dramatic clinical markers may not be there, but the parent sees the slow slow decline, and then may speak up about, well, I think my child needs a G-tube. And unfortunately, then that sometimes puts the family at risk if that's interpreted in the wrong way, where then a provider or someone who's in the healthcare team misinterprets that the parent is now trying to, you know, over-medicalize the -hmm. child. So, um, you know, we try to help a lot of patients with these types of challenges, and I think one of the takeaway messages is, you need to to ask questions, not make recommendations. As a fam, as a parent, or as a family, or ask for a team meeting. Try to get people talking about your child, and and let them be part of the decision. Because when you, as a parent, you know, kind of walk into the office and you have, you've been seeing your child decline, so you feel that emotional stress of of you know. I feel like they're on the brink of of getting worse and you say we need a G tube we need we need this we need to stop this then that can be um kind of an abrupt you know um red flag for the provider and then it can open up doors where the unfortunately where the family is questioned and and then you are kind of backpedaling and everybody's lost track of what we were there for in the first place, which was to help the child. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's really important to ask questions like um, part of the reason why we do written summaries of this type of presentation to accompany the slides, you can print it off and you can say, I listened to this educational lecture and I feel like this should be something we should talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, with my, yeah. I always think with that that's team. good too, like you utilize these you know, when everybody is so specific, but you can utilize any of these points that we talked about today as discussion points to exactly what you said, to open up the dialogue and get people, you know, visiting these different topics and say, okay, well, this is what the meal patterns looked like and this is how it's changed and this is how the energy level has changed and, you know, those types of things. And and just that just that open communication, I think, is so important. But, again, like Christy, like you said, and, you know, if if you get yourself into a place where you don't feel like you're being heard, that's, again, another great point to get a second opinion and, and talk with somebody else about it, too. Absolutely. Anybody um, have additional questions that they'd like to ask Kristen before we wrap up? I had an additional question. Um, in the presentation, you talked about malnutrition being one of the reasons for tube feeding and stuff. Um, I have complicated GI, lower GI issues, and and also overweight. So my GI and nutritionist and other doctors have been reluctant to do the tube feeding because of my weight issues. But because my motility is so slow, I only eat one meal a day, and that spaced out into some smaller meals that's the equivalent of one meal a day. Mm-hmm. And so the nutritionist is saying, I'm not getting enough calories, and therefore I need to be too fed. And the GI doc is saying, but you're overweight, you're not malnourished, mm-hmm. and your electrolytes are balancing out, so I'm not sure you need to be too fed. And the nutritionist is arguing that she's not eating enough calories, so her body is in static mode because... Mm-hmm. 
they're just trying to save what little calories it has. Have, do you guys experience much in that situation where those of us that are having trouble losing the weight? Does that make sense? Because I yeah. know that others in my situation or similar situations are overweight and not getting proper nutrition, but because we're overweight, it's being looked at right. as we're overeating, which isn't the case. Right, right. At least in my situation. Yeah, and I don't think that you're. I mean, I've 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 seen your situation before, and I think one of the most challenging things that all clinicians, whether you're a physician or a dietitian or a nurse or what, is that, like nationally, we struggle with how we define malnutrition and how we diagnose somebody with malnutrition. And you know, over the last several years, there's been more and more research that's come out that's showing that you can't just look at one parameter to define somebody as well-nourished or malnourished, and weight is one of those. You know, you can see people that have excess body weight and are still malnourished, and unfortunately, you've, this is exactly what you're experiencing is what happens is that there is this disconnect between two medical professionals on what they feel like the plan should be for you. Um, and I mean, you can you can continue to to try and talk with them about this, and maybe you know you bring in some of some of these points that we talked about today. And um, you know, you can always ask again. This is a time where you might need to ask for a second opinion if you just don't feel like you're making any leeway to the right to the right direction. But um, when you know when that nutrition assessment that the dietitian is doing, looking at your caloric intake, that can be very telling as to uh, a nutritional problem and malnutrition, you know, and it's just sometimes this doesn't reflect um, body weight and other laboratory parameters. And so, again, it's just something you need to keep talking about or, um, or seek out somebody else and see what they think about it. Do you happen to have links to any studies or anything that indicate anything of that that you just referred to? Did I just um, show him? You know, on the website or anything by chance? Yeah, we don't. I know we don't have any studies linked on our website, um, but I would imagine that your um, local dietitian might be able to kind of help with that. I mean, it's it's hard to pinpoint exactly a study that's going to address just that issue, um, but there are definite a ton of studies that talk about malnutrition being present in um, patients with an elevated body weight, and so those those types of studies are are very prevalent, and your local dietitian would be able to be able to get that for you as well. Okay. If you do have anything like that, Kristen, and you think of it and, you know, or any useful links and you want to email those to me, I'll add them to the website on this page that had the information about today's call where the summary and writing will also be posted. Okay. So that, you know, even just links to abstracts and, and, you know, articles and so forth, I think I'll help when we, the patient advocate you know, community is trying to be the liaison and helping sometimes our providers, you know, kind of catch up on the nuances of right, right. of managing the disease. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap up. This was um, extremely helpful and useful information, and I know will help a lot of people um, both today and in the future as this is such a common symptom to have dysmotility and mitochondrial disease. And, Kristen, you are um, obviously so compassionate in your tone and so thorough in the way that you um, clearly presented the information. And so I really appreciate um, your time. And on behalf of all the patients and families with mitochondrial disease, we 
wish you a happy holiday, and thank you so much for giving your time today. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Everyone who's listening in, I hope that you have a wonderful rest of the month of December. We do still have a couple support groups happening on Fridays in December. Same number, same time is what you called in today. So please take advantage of those. And join us on January 8th, again at noon Eastern time. That's a meeting you won't want to miss. It's our fifth year in a row of having the annual Mito Town meeting where I've invited um, every Mito organization around the world and uh, all the pharmaceutical companies doing clinical trials and leaders in research to join us and give a two or three minute update about what's happening for them in 2016. So you'll definitely want to be a part of that. That's January 8th. And if you don't already subscribe to the emails on our website, then do that, and that way you won't miss it. We'll be sure to send you a reminder with the link and all the details. Kristen, again, um, um, thank you, and thank you, ThriveX, for your support of Mito Action, and uh, I hope you have a great rest of the day and a great weekend. Thanks, you too. Thank you, everyone. Thanks.